for July 11th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 158, Klingonial Williamsburg. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, the podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Peter Fenzel, filling in for Matt Rather, who is on the last voyage of manned spaceflight in the history of humanity, which is transpiring now above our very heads uh, as he experiments on, uh, I believe it's a French press he brought up there to try to see if French presses work in space. It was one of the last applications <laughs> for that final voyage. Uh, so yeah, so today we're a bit in mourning, I suppose, for this loss, and I, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about it, like the loss of manned spaceflight, you know, the loss of the space program. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future, but for now, we want to talk about the legacy of space, the terrible secret of space, if you will. And if anybody knows what that reference is, congratulations and sign off on space the This is a terrible power. It does. <laughs> uh, do you have stairs in your house? Okay. Um, the please, question... please go away by your stairs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, people, must, they must be shoved. Okay. So <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you when you're older. All right. So the question for the panel today, now that this window has been closed for us forever and we will never have this option or opportunity, what fictional planet in the history of fictional depictions of outer space would you have loved to have had the opportunity to visit? Starting at the beginning of the alphabet, except for me, from Brooklyn, New York City, or Brooklyn, New York, Mark Lee. Mark, how are you doing today? Can we go back to calling it Crooklyn like they used to before Giuliani <laughs> cleaned up the city or whatnot? As long as humanity is moving backwards, I feel like we should, go, we should just make it its own city and give it back to the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> if we can't fly in outer space, that would be like B-R-E-U-K-L-E-Y, Brooklyn or something. Exactly, exactly. Right, so, yeah, some Dutch person is going to well actually me now. <laughs> the worst fate imaginable for an overthinking a podcaster. Okay, the uh, fictional planet that I would like to visit, it's the Planet of the Apes. I only saw this like three quarters of the movie, and it's really weird because these Azeroths go to this other planet. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And there's aliens on there, and they just look exactly like apes, and they're the sentient ones. And the humans, they're like these wild animals. It's wow. a crazy mixed up planet. <laughs> I really want to go there, but I can't anymore. What a shame. <laughs> um, have you ever met a little child who has this sort of beautiful sense of innocence, Mark, about the world and about things that happen in the world? I, I have, actually, yes. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever wanted to just, like, really just shatter that feeling of innocence that that child has? Or would you rather preserve it and protect it against the intrusions of harsh reality? Uh, preserve it? Why would you suggest such a horrible thing as shattering that illusion? Oh, preserving the illusions? That's yeah, what you would... Uh, absolutely, yeah. All right, then. Moving on! <laughs> <laughs> Can, can we somehow distill it and sell it? <laughs> I think that was I think that was an episode of Andromeda. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's the plot they, of the Dark Crystal. Where they like yeah, liquefy it in innocence and sell it on the <laughs> black market. It's the only power that'll launch the spaceship out of the gravity. <laughs> Why are you drinking on set, Kevin Sorbo? Come on, put that down. Show a little professionalism. Say like, this hair isn't naturally shiny on its own, people. <laughs> Uh, space is full of so many secrets. John Parrish, <laughs> you are calling in from Alpha Centauri, I believe, where you are. Arbit- uh, no, um, is that, are you still in Alpha Centauri, or did you not get on that on that ship? <laughs> no, I I hitched a ride back on. Uh, I, I'm sorry, you completely caught me off guard with the Alpha Centauri thing, and I'm I'm, I'm failing I'm failing to grab the thread. I, I had I had a, an answer in mind. Anyhow. <laughs> Humanity so, in flight. We just we just lost that grip and it just drifted away from us. <laughs> and, uh, and is and is now caught in another star's gravity well. All right. So fictional planet that I would most like to visit, uh, obviously Krypton, home of Superman, aka Kal El, or other way around, Kal El, aka Superman, and home of also Crypto, the Wonder Dog, Supergirl, General Zod, uh, the bottled city of Kandor, at <laughs> Jor El. Lara, cousin of Superman. <laughs> Breakpot the chef, you god, master killer. <laughs> <laughs> the list goes on. The Rizza, the Jizza, yes. Yeah, John, I, I know you're uh, reciting that from memory and not reading that off a Wikipedia page, right? Oh, definitely not. I mean, <laughs> wow. it, it, even Your knowledge of Superman out. is hey, so thorough. Wikipedia? Oh, that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, let me let me go look that up. But but yeah, I I, I wanna I wanna go visit Krypton. I wanna sort of explore that sort of high science fascist aesthetic for the last few years while it still exists and uh, 
poke around and maybe see if I can develop any superpowers under Krypton's red sun, since Earth's yellow sun gives Kryptonian superpowers. Mm-hmm. And and then I obviously I want to take off before uh, spoiler alert before Krypton blows up. Ah, uh, well we all know Krypton that blows up. Next thing you're going to be telling me is that the Planet of the Apes was just Earth the whole time. Oh, shut up! You're going to ruin it for your spoilers! <laughs> That's just ridiculous. That could never happen. You're right. Yeah. In our book, John, you still have the superpowers of extreme height and smooth, deep baritone voice. So uh, and that, that's pretty, that works pretty well in these neck of the woods. So maybe invisibility's next. I'm not sure. I mean, in a world of in a world of uh, very orally uh, sensitive elves, I would I would have uh, I would I would rule them like a king. I could just shout things at them from my six feet five inches, and they would be terrified. <laughs> Spectacular! Uh, uh, you went oral like AU. Like I, I imagine that like somehow you could fight a uh, dwarven gingivitis. Yeah, that, that too. Because I I, have, I could do that too because I have mouthwash and they don't. God damn. They treat you like a god with fresh minty breath. Uh, moving on, Dave Schechner, you're 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 quite the uh, you're quite the traveler, right? You've moved around quite a bit. Um, uh, yeah, around like the greater Boston area. Certainly. Yeah, like you were over by Longwood for a while, right? Which is like five miles away. I mean, in uh, a way, the greater Boston area is like outer space. In it a really way. is. That's yeah. true. It's full of all sorts of different kinds of people. There's lots of light. Uh huh. <laughs> Most, a lot uh-huh. of empty space. It, it's like it's it's well known that uh, outer space uh, just shuts down at two thirty in the morning every single day. <laughs> There's like a quantity uh, of science experiments that's just totally unreasonable per capita, like anywhere else in the world. That's right. <laughs> you, you can you can start a fight at any time with any person in outer space by just <laughs> by just wearing a Yankees cap. <laughs> that's all you need to do. You know, you're out in Proxima Centauri, and you're like, I'm itching for a fight. Let's put on my old Yankees cap. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I wonder if there would be a, uh, like, Chewbacca is like, you know, the subtitle is like, Jeter is gay. Like, yes. Jeter's <laughs> not gay. And being gay is not bad. But in well, Boston, that's one of the local <laughs> aphorisms. Rod Rod. Rod. Exactly. That's nice. <laughs> oh, that's great. <clears throat> well, uh, okay, so as... Uh, you know, as as the resident scientist on Overthinking It and denizen of the greater Boston area, uh, my choice for fictitious planet that I would want to visit, a planet that does not really exist but which everyone kind of thinks is, uh, I'm going to go with um, with Pluto. It's over. The discussion's done. Get over it. So you want to go to Pluto just so that you can, like, do the whole suck it DX thing to everybody else? Who yeah, I'm, I'm going to show up on Pluto. And I'm going to demonstrate that uh, the gravity that I feel on Pluto is no greater than the planet, the gravity I would have felt on, like, several large asteroids that I would have encountered on the way from here to Pluto, thereby Mm. demonstrating that Pluto is really no more of a planet than... uh, than any of those asteroids. Well, what's the what's the term for the uh, the way that the gravity, like the sort of characteristic that a planet has, uh, because the gravity like makes its surface regular in uh, in radius at least somewhat? Is there a term for that? Uh, uh, there probably is a term for that. Um, yeah. I am. It's a, like one of the characteristics that you could check by like walking around it, like the little prince on his little moon. Except Pluto's a little bigger than that, but uh, slightly um, big and uh, yeah. and <laughs> and less quaint. <laughs> It's less of less of like an earthy uh, uh, mirror on our own existence. Mm-hmm. Fair, enough. Fair enough. You know, no sunlight at any point during its time. Oh, that's so sad. Poor Pluto out there. No Mickey to feed him. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's me now. And I guess I could say the planet of King Kai, which is really small and has a classic car on it. But nobody knows Dragon Ball, so I'm going to skip it. And instead, I'm going to say uh, <laughs> the uh, I'm going to say the Klingon homeworld of Kronos or Konos. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I'd like to go to the Klingon homeworld because all the Klingons that we see in Star Trek, they're like space captains, space commanders, like like warriors right like diplomats they have all these official jobs they're like powerful folks who want to like who like you know all pissed off all the time like Bleh. and i feel like it would be really cool to like go to a klingon like coffee shop or like go to like a klingon cobbler or something along those lines 
Um, like I think I think that it would be cool. Be like, oh, are they? If you go in there and like, are they always on? Like, even when it's just Klingons, are they like always like on stage doing the Klingon thing? I'd be like, oh, I have a latte mocha. Do have a latte mocha? Everybody in the Starbucks is like, I feel like that'd be really amusing. <laughs> like, just like. Watch- <laughs> And it's like you, this you have sit, you have wronged me against my honor. Like, oh, get across away from the street. Like, would people be able to function? I mean, I know they show us in the show, but you know that when the cameras aren't rolling, that's when the real stuff happens. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. Um, while, while you're while you're on the Klingon homeworld, you could go to you know the Klingon Williamsburg. You can find yeah. the the Klingons who are, who are not so into the whole warrior thing. They're like just blah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kling, Klingonial Williamsburg. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually no. I'm referring to the Brooklyn Williamsburg. Oh, no. oh, you mean like where the Klingon hipsters were like, you know, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. killing and dying before it was cool. No, although the historical like reenactment part of, of Klingon town would be pretty cool as well. Yeah, where it's like amazing. Yeah, being butter is a warrior's craft. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're like this is the peanut shop. I don't speak actual Klingon, which isn't actual. <laughs> so I apologize for that, but I just also you get to maybe learn a little bit of, about how they change their faces, right? Because they go from having like the little facial ridges to being like full whacked out, crested, and all that stuff. That was uh, that, that was actually explained, right? Oh, it was. How was it explained? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at around the same time that uh, that humans were experimenting with um, like eugenic, or I guess. One of the several times humans were experimenting with eugenics. The, the same genetic uh, perfection programs that eventually generated Khan Singh, um, better known as Khan. Come, come back to me in a couple of minutes. Um, it, it, the, the same stuff was going on on planet, on whatever their planet is. It's not actually planet Klingon. That's yeah, no, it's, it's Kronos. They didn't even name it until the sixth Star Trek movie. That's crazy. Uh, okay, yeah. yes. So the same thing were, was giving rise to the Klingons as they were seen in the original series. So the guys like with the flat foreheads that had not had you know painstaking makeup applied to them by a bunch of production assistants over the course of ten hours before right. stepping on the set every day. Um, and so the the true Klingons, the ones that are that have been there the whole time, um, are the ones with like the rigid forehead. Right, 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 right. Fair enough. All right, so let's so let's talk about space. And so, just to set this up a little bit, what we're dealing with now is that due to budgetary constraints, and everybody knows that the profligacy of the government and government spending is an issue, not only in the United States but around the world during this whole deleveraging crisis, uh, we are witnessing a wind down. It looks like in manned space flight uh, and increased use of say like robots and uh, and uh, automata and other sorts of like um, probes and things like that, like uh, an increased percentage of space exploration, which has always been a large percentage of Space exploration, but an increased percentage of it is going to be done without people there, right? And the idea is that people are 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 fragile and expensive, and they have to breathe and eat and poop and use the treadmill and all this other nonsense. Uh, and robots are more efficient. Um, but in our popular consciousness, there is this huge space for space, right? And there's this like this dream of space, <laughs> this idea of space. I mean, and I feel like it's tough to let go. I mean, what do you, what do you guys, do you guys have like attachments? Are you guys sort of like Johnny Space Commander mask guys, uh, to, to quote Dan Aykroyd in that wonderful Halloween costume bit? Like, have any of you guys dreamed of being astronauts? Is that uh, something? Yes. You ever- yeah, of course. Space camp, hello. You went to space camp? No, so I wanted go to, space- to go. Like, well, you, were, right you were in the movie Space to. Camp? <laughs> no, funny enough, uh, the Trinvon Trivia effect, my sister was in a Space Camp f- film of sorts, not the Space Camp movie, but was like in a promo thing. She was like, like one, of, one, of its a, di- one of its direct video. Like, like, it was like, direct video, yeah. So like, like Space Fat Camp. And not, no, it wasn't Space Fat Camp. <laughs> space Jesus Camp. Camp. It was direct video. Not only that, she was a token minority on there, so. Nice. Yeah, claim the fame there. So let me tell you. Let me just start things off a little bit about space and what it means. I'll I'll start sort of what it means sort of from a non pop culture standpoint, and I'll we'll take it from there. Yeah. Right. Um. Obviously, like you know, the concept of exploring space and going to outer space and traveling there has been in the popular imagination well before humans were actually able to go to space. Right. Jules Verne and whatnot. Yep. Right. Um. But when humans actually were able to make that tremendous leap into, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the final frontier. Right. That is was, uh, such. Uh, that leap was such a huge one. Right. That you know the, it really sort of sets the imagination afire. And sort of from more like uh, grounded human perspective, uh, it really what what you know, the most interesting thing about me for 
space, about a man traveling to space, is how freaking inspiring it is. Right. If you go remember back to John F. Kennedy's famous speech, right? Uh, we cho- choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And because it's hard for me to say hard ahs. Um, so that really encapsulates it for me right there, right? The, the, the engineers that tackled in, incredibly difficult scientific and operational challenges to blast off these humans into space safely and get them mm-hmm. back. It's insanely complicated. It's insanely risky. It's insanely dangerous. Yeah. And yeah. like, when are we going to be able to do that again? Like, you know, that well, sort of thing. Like, well, you know, we, we need some sort of like, you know, something insanely complicated and dangerous, like solve global warming or something like that. But you know, I mean, Mark, there, there was a point where, uh, where, you know, American citizens were saying to one another, we used to get drunk all the time and we're never going to be able to do that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, are you saying there's going to be like space gangsters? And then, <laughs> there's like bootlegging. Space- <laughs> there's like a little speed. Like you go to the back of like a pet shop and you knock on the door and you speak the password and like they open up and there's just a giant vacuum vortex <laughs> sucking you out into infinity. <laughs> it's nice, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so all that is to say that that's how and why space and space flight captured my imagination. It's like, oh, I want to be an astronaut because it's hard, because it's dangerous, and because it's special. It's unique. Not a lot of people have gone to space, mm. which is why you know it captures. I assume why it captures the imagination in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Well, the the era of space fiction, and I guess if you want to subdivide, you know, science fiction, which is just you know scientific concepts, you know, as, as applied as applied as a genre trope. Space fiction itself being about adventures in space, you know, people in a vessel going to other planets and having having fun times there, and then coming back. Space fiction itself or, originates from that whole era between like the late 30s into, I guess, mid to late 60s, where there was a lot more faith in the efficacy of science as it is. And I I think a lot of that has to do with how remote and inaccessible science was. If you... If you consider if you consider science fiction and space fiction of that period, you know, a lot of it had a lot of it centered around people being able to personally transport themselves into space. Like, oh, I've got my jet car and I'm gonna take it to take it to Mars for the weekend, or oh, I've got a personal you know, personal spacecraft that can do like an interstellar jump and get me to uh, you know, get me from Hoth to Dagobah without having to be inside a giant spaceship. I've just got R two D two in the back of my X Wing and I can make that jump myself. But I, I guess it's hard to maintain that sort of faith in science now that, you know, we all have desktop computers and we've all gone through, you know, mandatory installations of service packs and <laughs> troubleshoot <laughs> and antivirus soft. I'm, 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 being, I'm, are you saying that like Windows update installer has crushed yeah. your dream? Has, has, has Clippy superseded Jules Verne? Is that what we're saying here? It's like you're trying to advance humanity. Do you need some help? (laughs) (laughs) It is is funny, but I'm being 60% serious here. I mean, the the more... The more universal and personal technology has become, the less uh, the less faith I think we have in it to really advance humanity as a whole. Because I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be you know surrounded by the the cold glossy vacuum with something only as reliable as Windows Seven, for instance. Uh huh. It could be worse. It could be Vista. Hi. <laughs> uh, right? Are you or or Windows Me? Like heaven to. God, when will a time paradox finally swallow that into non-existence? Should have sent a Linux server. <laughs> we should have sent an open source poet. I could crowd. <laughs> I could crowd source the. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of at odds with with what Parrots just said there because you know, I mean, science has delivered pretty hardcore. Like like we've generated both the ability to communicate with people on the other side of the planet in real time via video chat. And also antibiotics in the course of about 80 years, which you consider like the previous, you know, 10,000 or so minus 80 years of human existence is, is like a, a pretty giant leap forward. True. Let me, let me rephrase. I don't want to downplay the, the importance and efficacy of science. That's universally yeah. true. I want to I, I want to rather talk about science fiction itself, and you don't see yeah. a lot of, you don't see a lot of science fiction between the 30s and 60s that deals a lot with. Uh, that deals a lot with technology that breaks down for just no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it mostly it mostly breaks down because uh, it creates a swarm of giant ants that then eat it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Or, right. you know, it, it unwittingly gains sentience and takes over the planet or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah. And and that 
you know, that happens. But you never, you never get someone who's rocketing through space between, you know, Earth and Mars or Earth and a black hole. And all of a sudden their space, spaceship just stops. And they have to spend a few chapters diagnosing the issue and getting into the source code and getting access to the root kit and running some compiler routines, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's like, oh, i got to reinstall the kernel. <laughs> um, I am kernel. Well, all right. Uh, no, I mean, well, although that is a major plot point in Empire Strikes Back, right? Not that they're reinstalling the kernel, but, like, you know, they're trying to fix the Millennium Falcon for... The, or the hyperdrive on the Millennium Falcon for the better yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, It was the main plot point in Apollo 13. Uh, the movie as well as, you know, the made-for-TV <laughs> miniseries that happened in the <laughs> early the 70s. event. <laughs> yeah. It was a yep. major plot point in actual history. Um, <laughs> True, I, but I... I, I mean, Another I, thing to, to consider is that, like, you know, our, our sort of view back on science fiction happened it, or sort of like through the guise now of a post-Star Trek um, sort of science fiction scape. Like a lot of the stuff that preceded Star Trek had a, had a much more ambivalent or even negative view about like the forward progress of science. Like things might not necessarily break down. Uh, they, they might not function or it's not that they would cease to function in the way that their creators had intended. It's that they would have uh, – vastly unintended consequences like making giant swarms of ants or lizards mm. or grasshoppers or whatever like the production assistant happened to find on the set that day and they could put under high focus um, does that go back to frankenstein's Frankenstein monster in some way uh, maybe even earlier but yeah i mean Fra- that's a you know it's a great example terrible right. un- unintended consequences of science yeah that's right mm-hmm. oh i thought you meant like allowing women to publish novels oh <laughs> <Aww. laughs> yeah i went there rules. <laughs> yeah, way so, to kick Mary Shelley. Wait, that wasn't kicking Mary Shelley. Who was that kicking? Some like unnamed novel uh, publisher. Uh, uh, Byron. Byron kicking Mary Shelley. I guess he per- probably does. Percy Shelley. No, Percy Shelley. Percy Granger. I don't know. Damn it! Done. This conversation's moved away from science. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so I think what, what so what you're saying, John, is it's not like we are. We've seen the limitations. It's it's also that we're just more familiar with it. Period. It's a bigger part of our own lives. It's less exotic, right? Like so. Maybe this idea that um yeah now, that now techno- that- not just science but technology specifically like the sort of application. I mean, what do you, how would you define technology? Like the sort of practical application of scientific principles and the development of machines or apparatus tools things along those lines for expanding the capabilities of people i mean like that is what we live with more now than used to right increased technology now now that each of us has on their desktop at home the computing power of the apollo 11 mission we times many many times yeah many many times it could go one of two ways i mean we could for i mean really could have gone one of two ways we could have either a recognize that, wow, we have the computing power of the Apollo 11 mission many times over on our desktop, and yet people, people use this. Like, people use the equivalent of my iMac when I'm torrenting nine, or tor, uh, torrenting nine different things and, you know, have, have no real computing power to get to the moon. That's amazing what heroes they were. Or we could go the other way and say, wow, I have the computing power of the Apollo 11 mission on my desktop, and I can't use this to get to the moon. I guess technology is not all it's cracked up to be. And I think the well, decline I, of the fascination with space goes more the other goes more the latter than the former. It's, it's, that, not, it's not like the universal accessibility of technology has encouraged us, except for a few people like the, the X-Prize and, and people like that who are trying to privately get into space. But aside, aside from a few eccentrics like that, it, it hasn't led to a renaissance of space fascination. I mean, I think, um, I think the problem, John, is not with, uh, with technology failing people, but with people failing themselves. Right? Like, you know, we all, we all have... I, I was actually told at one point that, you know, when you throw out one of those um, cheesy birthday cards that, like, when you open it, it plays, you know, a song for you. Not even, like, the recent versions of this where you can, like, record a little MP3, but, like, the ones you used to get back in the 80s where it would, like, yep. you know, put out a little digitized happy birthday. When, when you throw that in the trash... You're actually throwing out um, more computing power than was on any of the Apollo, or like all, all of the Apollo capsules combined. Wow! Um, and, and so you have, you know, orders of magnitude more computation power than any of those astronauts ever had uh, on on all of their missions. Uh, what are you doing with it? Is the question, and the answer is, you know, not really a heck of a lot. 
Hey, I'm Platinum League 2v2. I may only be Silver League 1v1. <laughs> but... you, were, you, you are detoing all up in this mother. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. he, everyone brings up the computing power of the Apollo missions. I may have many, many times the computing power of the Apollo missions on my desk, but I don't have nearly the amount of welding power or rocket fuel power that they had in the Apollo missions on my desk. That, maybe that also shows us something about the way our focus has changed, right? Because it's like, in my day, we didn't go to space with computers. We went to space with rockets, right? It's like, it's... Uh, <laughs> We wore like aluminum foil suits. Computer. We brought we a monkey. We wore aluminum foil suits with us and brought a monkey. It, well, not even aluminum foil, but ones that were airtight and like provided us with oxygen. <laughs> like oh, yeah. you know, there's, there's all sorts of other kinds of technology that's involved in spaceflight. Uh, other than just computers, um, and I, and it seems like computers. I mean, at the point now, if you talked about say a tech company, right? A tech company now in uh, in in. Uh, parlance of the markets is an information technology company, which has always amused me because being in the theater, tech means lights, which is a little bit lower <laughs> lower grade in the whole scale. I mean, I don't want to insult lighting techs. I think they're awesome, but like, it would be kind of amazing if you're like, yeah, General Electric is a tech company because they make light bulbs. Um, but no, it's like uh, all this computer stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess we talked about that, but let, let, let's, let's, talk about, like, uh, let's talk about the archetypes here. Right, like let's talk about like who's who are some of your favorite like space character archetypes and like think about it. Could they exist as characters if they weren't in space? Like, what would they be like? Right, um, uh, like would is space something? I mean, like like take um, uh, take uh, uh, was it Mal from Firefly? Is that his first name? Is Mal? Is yeah. that his name? Uh, um, yeah, Malcolm. You can't take the sky away from him, but they just did, right? Um, but like, uh, I mean, I guess he would he would need like the open frontier or something. But like, there's something about that character that seems to to function alongside the vacuum of space, the darkness of space, right? It's it's more than just the darkness of the prairie, right? It's like he's not just a cowboy. There's also like an, a, a sort of poetic aspect and lyrical aspect to being a, a space traveler. That's important to who this person, this fictional person, is, and how the story is told. Um, so, like, more, you're talking about yeah. characters that play off of the isolation of space. I mean, well, all the different aspects of well, space. Well, for that one, like the most readily example, ready example is in space, no one can hear you scream. That being aliens or alien and aliens, right? You think about right. characters who uh, you know are in a dangerous situation um, in in extreme isolation, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about like where could that work in a context that's not space? Well, you think about well, what are the earthbound? Uh, analogs of that, right? Deep sea explorers. That sort of yeah. works, right? And, and you yeah. know, again, another James Cameron you know, connection there of the abyss, yeah. right? And then well, also well, with uh, DSV is is a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> But, <laughs> okay, DSV is a lot of ridiculous. You take that back, sir. I demand I'll satisfaction. Send that talking dolphin over here to apologize, and I'll take it back. <laughs> I will not have a spoken of this way. Oh, yeah, the actual talking uh, Anyway, Mark, continue. So just to wrap that up, right? So there's, there's that, but maybe more the better example, because this undersea exploration... You know, it's, it's such a rarity, right? It doesn't really capture the uh, popular imagination as much as the Spanish conquistadors or the explorers from the you know the age of exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries, right? Um, and there, and, and, that, that anal- the analog doesn't quite work uh, unless I don't know unless you consider the Native Americans to be aliens, which I guess some people do. <coughs> James Cameron, <laughs> James, um, but uh, that is to say, all this is to say that yes, space provides a <laughs> a unique. <laughs> level of danger and isolation that makes for uh, stories that otherwise would not be possible. Although, I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't, uh, I'm going to say that that doesn't have to take place in space, right? I mean, there are a lot of horror movies that are about people um, ending up in a place with no hope of rescue and they've discovered something awful. You know, uh, you get lost in a cave, you get lost in some old Aztec ruins, you (laughs) check into a hostel uh, somewhere in Europe, um, you know, uh, but like, there's the it, thought of like rescue being close yet so far away, right? Whereas in like 2001 or an alien, that is a remote, so remote, it's just like it's no chance of anybody getting to you. I guess so. I mean, but it, it yeah, it, it becomes a numbers game at that point, right? Like, is there is there some switch that flips in your brain uh, along the continuum of help is is next door? To help will take ten hours to get here. To help will take ten years to get here. Like, is there some like threshold that you cross over uh, upon which like you suddenly see this piece as something totally different? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll raise an alternative in- interpretation. Um, 
I mean, I've been reading uh, a lot of Game of Thrones recently, right? And so, you know, Game of Thrones, there are characters who find themselves uh, with nowhere to go. Nothing, no, no, no safe place that they can go, and so they have to sort of make do in a situation that they would not want to be in, and that, that's a different kind of idea. In one of the cool things I always thought about space, not necessarily just the isolation, but the fact that if you have a spaceship, like you can get out there somewhere where nobody can follow you and where nobody can can bother you, right? Um, more than just the isolation and the threat of isolation, there's also the uh, the gift of isolation, and the, and it provides you with a certain freedom and a certain opportunity to to rest and breathe right like if you're out in deep space in a spaceship um you have an opportunity to like hang out with your friends and just talk um like i I remember like if you think about space battles in star trek i felt like access this feeling more than than it might uh might have been in uh might is obvious at first but because the the space battles in star trek there seems to be a certain like they almost feel like these these man of wars in uh like british naval battles right where it's like okay line up charge up the phasers like fire you're not really up on top of everybody else's business like you have your own sort of castle your own sort of citadel that's that you can take wherever you want and nobody can like nail you down i don't know um so there's it's not just isolation it's not just space does have a certain freedom that i guess is associated with the frontier aspect of things but is even more absolute um but still requires you to have a spaceship i don't know yeah. Um, I, uh, my my favorite aspect of space, at least in space travel and fiction, sort of goes along pe- along with those lines, but I guess takes it in a more specific direction, which is, I guess, the notion of space as the open road. So if you read a lot of science fiction from the 40s, 50s, and I guess right up until maybe the very beginning of the 60s, you get a lot of things like Asimov's Foundation novels are a great example of this, where, you know, oh, so our protagonist has a has a problem they need to solve, they're just going to hop in their ship and, you know, jump to this this other planet. And there'll be some sort of uh, hyperspace or whatever whatever they're calling it in this version. But there's never the idea that space travel itself is inherently dangerous. Like, there's no, there's no risks in jumping or in space navigation. And I, I think that really comes from, at least, especially in American science fiction, the, the growing notion of, with the, the American interstate highway system, the notion that, you know, that our country was just a, a great big paved road and you could just get in your car, hop on the highway and see the entire country in a, in a relatively safe, contained environment. You know, you had your big old station wagon, you can load it up with a picnic basket and throw the kids in the back and just go from, from motel to motel and see, and see a great deal of the country. And that was, that was incredibly freeing for a large portion of the populace, especially post-World War II. The idea that, oh, you know, this country's not a big, mysterious mess to me anymore. It's, it's no longer like Iowa might as well be France if I'm, you know, from Maryland, because they're, they're equally, or I guess roughly, well, not roughly equally far apart, but as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're equally just... Equally effete, is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Those Easy there, Alabama. The- Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling one from the Romney uh, playbook, aren't we? <laughs> Those untouchable Iowans. But no, I mean, they're, they're equally <laughs> foreign, perhaps, because, you know, if I'm from Maryland and it's 1920, my odds of ever seeing, you know, St. Louis are about as high as my odds of ever seeing, I don't know, Barcelona. Whereas, you know, with the existence of the interstate highway system, I can, I can jump in the car, drive there pretty safely and pretty cheaply, stay at motels, you know, have some delicious fast food along the way. And it's, it's great. It's an adventure. It's safe. It's fun. And I'll, and I'll get to my destination and then I'll have – and then I'll be put at risk perhaps. But in the meantime, I'm, I can travel safely. So that, that whole sort of like self-contained world within the spaceship that you bring with you – and then you know you emerge on a new planet, and then you're at risk. Was a was a neat little. Well, that's what always appealed to me. Yeah, but you know you almost never have like the roadside greasy spoon diner analog in in space travel fiction, right? Like you're not actually stopping by at the Motel Six. You're traveling in a Winnebago. Well, you know? they have uh, their space balls where they travel in a Winnebago. Yeah, that, space cafeteria. That's right. That's that's the only example I can I can think of off the top of my head of like well, you know, in Hitchhiker's the, Guide they have places like that. But that's also like okay. I think they're deliberately making fun of the fact that other space literature doesn't have kind of, kind of place, right? Like right, right. Uh, like you're talking about like Louis and Tailspin, right? Or like the yeah. bar where all the pilots hang out. I mean, there's <laughs> I mean, Moss Eisley is like that in Star Wars, right? And um, no, no, no. It, it's yeah. not. It, I mean, Moss Eisley, I never saw as like a service community, right? It's not like a. It's not like a Motel Six. It's not there for the purpose of people who are. There's not constant foot traffic by Moss Eisley, 
and therefore, you know, uh, an economic uh, opportunity to like open this bar. This is this is for locals, right? Right. Uh, right, right. Or I guess it's for people sort of like stopping by because they're kind of trying to duck under the cover of um, of the government's gaze. Right. I mean, I guess there's like yeah. Also, one of the things about space fiction is that it's uh, because it comes out of the 50s and 60s, or the 30s through 60s, which is like a heavily militarized and mobilized time period when you know the government was something that you kind of had to be on board with because your life depended on it, right? Because it's like it's a lot harder to say like the government when like the neo Nazis are coming to kill you. Um, Like a lot of the operations in space fiction are very publicly. You know, publicly funded. There's not a lot of of uh, commerce necessarily. There's some, but it's like you know, a lot of it is military officers and military bases, and and it's not really semi-privatized in the way that a lot of the services that are offered to the military people now are semi-privatized. I mean, we talked about this in our Death Star, um, our Death Star uh, economics post recently too, which I recommend everybody read. Um, it depends on it depends on which sort of space fiction you're reading, because I've I've read plenty of examples which. Well, it it did tend to be large institutions one way or the other. So it was either, you know, government-funded space travel or giant, you know, space corporations, you know, sending massive trading vessels across the stars, etc. Right, right, right. Or, I guess guess there was a little bit of the frontier aspect as well. You get people who are getting out there and prospect. But there was, I guess there wasn't much entrepreneurship in space. At least not at least not in the original original generations of space fiction. Everyone who was going out there was going out, you know, as a representative of uh, either as a representative of a greater power, whether corporate or public, or was sending resources back to the the home empire as a as a colonist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get, we're talking about all this, and I can't help but think that it feels as we analyze it it feels so impersonal and so much space sci-fi is so personal right like i would not characterize an epi- like my experience of watching say star trek the next generation as uh as really embedded in any of these big trends that that seem so faceless right like there's such a familiarity to these space characters um, there's such a humanity to it. Um, is there something that we're missing that, that kind of accounts for how sympathetic we feel towards these these uh, space people and like the, the the sort of call of space travel and, and like why it makes us sad to think that people aren't going to be doing it at least for a little while? Um, is, is there something special there or is it like an extension of these trends into sort of subjective experience? And that's really just what all that it is. I mean, doesn't that sort of call back to to the original question that you posed when when you sort of started this up? I mean, uh, I mean, fr- from an authorial standpoint, you need to let your you need to have your audience connect with your characters. Yeah. Otherwise, they're never going to be interested in reading or watching, you know, or participating in in what you're giving to them. But you know, it, it ends up as sort of like a, a like a pan theme in all of this stuff, all at least all of the the good examples of it, or at least all of the beloved examples of it, where you know, despite uh, despite the fact that these characters live in a world that's that's totally, I mean, does not in any way really resemble your own. It's technology that if you were just immediately transported to it, have no way how to use or interact with. You know, they 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 might as well be alien themselves, or maybe they are, uh, but nonetheless, they haven't really lost their humanity. There's some central core element to what defines them that is the same as it is in you. Right, and it's right. because that they retain that in such a strange environment, and so everything else is so weird that that familiarity is something we latch onto even more, yeah. even, more even more tightly, cleave to it even more tightly. I could buy that. I could buy that. My take on it has more to do with the culture that everyone on this podcast shares, namely that we're all American. And the space program, with through the through the twentieth century, with the exceptions of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, uh, really has been primarily American. I mean, we're America is the one that put a man on the moon. America is the one that made the space shuttle and has has put together a lot of the you know a lot of the space exploration efforts. Not not to downplay the efforts of the USSR and the Russians. I mean, those were substantial, but it, it's primarily been it's primarily been an American show. So. And and America itself has generated a lot of a lot of what we consider space fiction. I mean, if you consider British science fiction, the most prominent example of which probably being Doctor Who, the the notion of travel in Doctor Who is 
uh, is almost incidental. Like, how does Doctor Who get around? Oh, he's got a police call box. You know, how does it get there? It just gets there. You know, he goes in, pulls a lever, and it's where he needs to be. The notion of travel, and I'm probably the, the least familiar with Doctor Who of anyone on the podcast, so please correct me, but the notion of transit is, is the least essential element in Doctor Who. And I think that... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And I think that, ha- that has to do with the fact that, you know, as Americans, we're fascinated with the rocket and the shuttle, and with Britain, that was less of a concern, so they're more fascinated with the exploration and the, the exotic. So I, I actually, um, I've been watching a lot of Doctor Who lately. Uh, I was you know, sort of really into it for a while and then kind of lost touch with it, and thanks to the glory of Netflix, I'm getting back with it. Technology. Um, and I've been thinking a lot that Doctor Who really is uh, just a, a great extended metaphor for the sort of British worldview, you know, and, and, and that the differences between Doctor Who and, say, something like Star Trek um, really do highlight the differences between the sort of innate American dream and whatever the sort of British analog. I don't, I don't think that you know, the British dream exists in the lexicon as such. Um, but, but this idea that, you know, like a, a lot of American science fiction is about like venturing out there and either um, from a personal standpoint or, or a legal standpoint, making something untamed your own. You know, it's either going out there and conquering a world or going out there and, you know, experiencing it and bringing that experience back to the Federation or whatever. Uh, but, you know, you claim the sort of personal ownership of it. Whereas I think sort of a long-running theme in Doctor Who is about um, how you feel about the, the world uh, after your empire has crumbled. You know, you, you were this great, powerful entity. And from a sort of um, symbolic standpoint, you still have that, that cultural heft but you no longer control the things that go on around you. And, and what can you do to, in, in many cases, you know, make amends for the, the woes that you have sort of, you know, uh, dropped upon the, these people you know, throughout history? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there's a, I mean, so it's sort of, we're talking about manifest destiny when we're talking about this yeah. sort of American yeah. cultural extension, right? And so, well, I guess I always sort of, I always sort of questioned manifest destiny uh, I didn't necessarily understand it intuitively. I mean, I guess it does make sense because uh, cause we're talking a lot, about an, what? A lot of people question manifest destiny. I think the the later half of the twentieth century was was yeah. most most people doing that. <laughs> a lot, well, a lot yeah, of minorities but, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that's. I mean, I, I understand what you mean, but I don't mean question in the sense of like doubting it or disagreeing with it, but definitely like a question in the sense of like not understanding it because it's easy to to say you know be all hipster and be like manifest destiny never mattered or never happened or was a big lie, but um, I think that if we don't effort to understand it because it was such a powerful idea. Uh, like that's the hard part, right? Is understanding what the deal is with manifest destiny in the first place that got people so up about it. Um, because I mean, I don't know. I kind of ascribe to that kind of you know, Foucault-esque way of thinking, where if we are obsessed with hating a thing, we are obsessed with the thing and haven't really thrown it off of our public consciousness, right? This idea that Victorian England was obsessed with sex because it was saying no to sex all the time. If we're always saying no to colonialization, we are like an, a colonially obsessed country. Or people, right? And as such, we have not moved past it, and it is still the thing that dominates our, our way of our technologies of power and our ways of structuring ourselves. Yeah. No, um, nonetheless, the editors at Overthinking It would like to once again emphasize to our listeners: just say no to triangle trade. <laughs> um, there <laughs> are better rum. <laughs> there are better ways to get rum or slaves. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, slavery is wrong. And bad, and people need to remember it wasn't that long ago, and we need to, you know, take, be conscious of that because it was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, but that's but not rum a is good. Also, rum good. is awesome. Yeah, no rum. They almost yeah. cancel out, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not going to slip that one in on me, <laughs> I'm not going to let that one go by. No, the, I the might be a little distracted. The important point, Pete, is that I have, I, I can cut an MP3 where, where I say, rum and slavery almost cancel out. And Pete goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, you're going to make a dubstep track. It's like, <laughs> rum and slavery. <laughs> My sister introduced me to dubstep the other day and explained it to me, and it uh, it's like a dentist drill. I mean, I'm just. It's, it's, I mean, it's cool and all. It's noise. Um, 
But anyway, I think I think we've had this conversation in the comment threads before where like the sort of sense of techno dance music that's more narrativized versus the sort of European sense of techno dance music that's sort of more of a driving beat is a different thing. But I'm getting off the subject. The subject is that Manifest Destiny is this idea that people had that there was an American culture that laid claim to the entire North American continent or at least the part of it that we convinced ourselves was like arbitrarily ours, right? And that perhaps this idea extended to space and it made us feel better to watch people going into space because on the earth there was a certain limit to the amount of progress that was being made, I guess, right? And so maybe it is like to people who base a great deal of their psychology around Manifest Destiny, whether they know whether they're doing it or not, space fiction is a comfort because it allows them to enact those ways of thinking and well to make those to to place objects uh, to to focus attention on objects that support that way of thinking um, w- without actually having to deal with the real world implications of what actually happened in manifest destiny, which is of course very different from the whole story of it right so i don 't know so, so uh, this is this is our way of enacting our colonialist fantasy basically uh, it 's not enacting a colonialist fantasy it 's like it 's basically our colonialist methadone. It's like our way of like continuing to function <laughs> when we can't be colonialists anymore. Oh, okay, interesting. Be colonialists anymore because our psychology and our technology of power and the way that we organize ourselves depends upon us being colonialists. Now, of course, in a lot of ways, we are colonialist. Um, you know, like you know, <laughs> those SUVs don't make themselves. Um, yes, we we are. But this brings yet. us to the point that I yeah. This <laughs> this brings us to the point that I wanted to bring up, which is that. Um, you know, the end of American man's spaceflight essentially comes at the same time when we're, there's a lot of anxiety about the decline in American power, right? That, um, you know, we say that we still still are colonialists. Well, yes, that's pretty, true, pretty much true, but in some ways that's becoming less true each day. At the very least, uh, the American hegemony is on the decline. I think we can all agree about that. Okay, now all of our podcast listeners just jumped out the window. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, so, wouldn't necessarily say that. It, I mean, I would also argue that it's what we are seeing is a resurgence in, in all sorts of different kinds of colonialism, and it's not... Okay. But anyway, but sure, just, uh, just, I'll, I'll, I'll take it for granted for now without agreeing with it. That's, it's, a, it's a drastic simplification of the issue for sure. Yeah, yeah. But let me just uh, play this out here, is that now that spaceflight is ending and American power is on the... But this, theoretically on decline what if any impact is this going to have then on our future fiction that is about space and or science fiction will it have any impact at all or will this sort of like accelerate this trend we're talking about here of like having like even more outlandish colonial methadone treatment (laughs) well battlestar galactica the remake was a pretty good example of like a space fantasy that wasn't very fantastical um right and like had a lot of angst right um yeah, I'm actually watching that yeah. right now on Netflix. I've like barreled my way almost through the, the all of season one, and has a lot of angst is uh, an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> well, because when you remove these kinds of crutches, what people have to deal with is like you know bleak existential reality, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah, you don't have that 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 form to hang your hat on anymore, and you have yeah. to reinvent what's going on with yourself, and that's very yeah. painful. Mark, you, you didn't you didn't read any of the physics papers where they proved that faster than light travel uh, has to be powered by hand wringing, did you? <laughs> also paranoia and backstabbing. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Hey, in the game of robots, you win or you die. <laughs> How it works. Uh-huh. Well, if you if you want to be if you want to be excessively dichotomous, you can divide science fiction into into two categories, which are okay. Two up. categories. Hit me up. Let's do it. <laughs> which aren't entirely arbitrary. There's the one which say, which says that oh, these advances in technology will solve a lot of our human problems. And there's the one that says, no, they won't. So <laughs> the Star Trek utopian vision versus like the more dystopian Terminator or I guess Battlestar Galactica, right? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be dystopian. I mean, it could be, uh, I guess you might say uh, like the Star, like Star Wars or the Buck Rogers serials are examples of the latter where, you know, there, there are ray guns and spaceships and all that stuff, but people still have to deal with, you know, racism and the wars of empires and things like that. I, I, think, I think Star Trek is distinctly utopian in that because we have this technology, we can overcome things like racism, disease, poverty, etc. Whereas I would say any universe in which racism, disease, and poverty still exist, but, oh, we have ray guns too, and it, the tone can still be optimistic. Now, there are some deliberately pessimistic takes, like... Uh, cyberpunk or new age fiction from the uh, late 60s and 70s but that's the dichotomy I would draw 
But does Star Trek really say that we've um, that we have solved those problems, or does it just sort of project the um, the current cultural conflicts that humanity is experiencing onto interrace relations, like, so, like actual interspecies relations? Star, Star Trek as a universe explicitly solves poverty. Like no one in Star Trek is poor, as I understand. Again, well, no, no, no human in Star Trek is poor, but surely they, they find some like poor aliens at some point, right? Oh, True. Yeah, like, no, no one in the Federation is poor unless they, they really, really want to be or unless the Ferengi have declared them like a, a real priority for that fiscal quarter or what have you. It's like, oh, let's, <laughs> let's make these guys poor. Ah, <laughs> 10,000 ducats and Antonio to bear. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are bars of uh, gold-pressed latinum that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Antonio still has to pay that crap up, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, Stupid Antonio. Cork's got to get his money. Oh, get money. <laughs> <laughs> pay, pay, Papa. He's got to buy it's some all, earrings. It's all about the Latin, baby. It's all in the game, baby. <laughs> I don't know what was the game that they played in the thing with the uh, this the wheel and Quark's uh, thing. All right, uh, you're going Deep Space Nine there, man. Like we're nerds, <laughs> but you know. We yeah, have I guess Deep Space Nine isn't the real deal, really. Um, <laughs> Let's have an exciting adventure about ships that fly around in space that don't fly around in space. <laughs> <laughs> Babylon Five is really good. Deep Space Nine is also good, but yeah, it does lack a certain. Uh, how do the French say? Uh, I don't know what about the space television show. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pronounced. Yeah. Je ne sais quoi un spaceship. No, un rocket boy. Rocket ship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, like, the, uh, if you look to the uh, visions of space that other cultures have, you can, if you wanted to in, infer and, and, and put on there, you can look at, oh, in Japanese space fiction, it shows a lot of the anxieties in Japanese history and their sort of fear of mass destruction and, and their dependence upon technology and social structures, right? And, like, uh, and all that other stuff. And if you look at, like, uh, French uh, fiction, it's all about people making out in outer space in funky ways. And not- <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you, you just, you've, you've glossed over Jules Verne entirely and gone, gone straight to uh, Manuel in space, haven't you? Uh, yeah, exactly. And, uh, as well as, yeah, the poem's have hilarious. And God knows that. Jules uh, Verne's journey to the center of Emmanuel. <laughs> uh, but let's put aside outer space and travel to yet another exotic realm, yet another final frontier, because we've been doing some weekly listener feedback here on the podcast. Uh, I mean, did anybody have any final thoughts on space before I move on into the Twitterverse? No. Going once. Going twice. Gone! Oh, wait, what was that? You had something? Pluto's not really a planet. All right, you said that already. Okay, so... So we've been doing weekly listener feedback. Unfortunately, Rather took all the listener feedback with him in his space capsule. So we don't have the other stuff that you've been emailing us. But what we do have is our Twitter followers. So we asked people live, although this is on tape delay, but it's live now. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to curse, but then Mark would have to edit it out, so I'm going to skip cursing. Um, so I'm going to go through the couple of questions we got from our readers. Um, some of them will require answers. Others of them will not, but I'm going to read them anyway. So the first question we got <laughs> was from uh, C. Morgan Examiner, who writes, At Overthinking It, Dear Overthinking It Podcast, colon, First time, long time. My question is, why are you so great? See, that's a good question. I like that question. <laughs> Any comments on that question, or should we just move on? Uh, jokey version are insanely awesome good looks, which translate oh, yeah. really well to the podcast. Uh, serious version, which we've discussed in this podcast before, is the fact that uh, we've known each other for a very long time and have you know a rapport that has been built up over the years. Right. Other podcasts. Decades in the making. Then what's, my, then what's my excuse? John, John, you're just awesome. You have your superpowers. You're right. Always- and your baritone voice. Material. Forward! Our next question. <laughs> <laughs> we know uh, you, you guys. So uh, I, I, I was talking about this already. <laughs> was, yeah. Were you saying, Dave? Uh, on a high school science trip, I was bitten by a radioactive debater. <laughs> uh, that's, that's where I get it, you know. Yeah, he's he's from a hive mind, and there's a master of the hive. Um, okay, so Hill Watcher asks, at overthinking it, why have you not named a podcast Cemetery Ridge yet? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> wow. That's a very specific podcast, and if you know the reference, you're laughing right now. If you're not, we're going to move on. And so it's dirty. Dirty. Ooh. Okay, so here's the first real question, which is from J Dub's essay, who writes, at overthinking it. What's the deal with Zookeeper? 
It's treating zookeeping like a janitor's job. Don't you need years of education and training for that? Question mark. Um, so we actually talked about – you guys are, are unfortunately very unlucky listeners because you were going to get an entire podcast about the movie Zookeeper, which none of us saw. <laughs> and we did talk about doing the podcast and we decided not to go forward with it. But we will conjecture about the movie Zookeeper and what it might have been about, which we've been told uh, by JWSA is sort of a glorified Paul Blart mall cop kind of situation, right? Where it's Kevin James playing a lovable loser who is kind of like stomped on by life and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, does anybody here know any well, zookeepers? or I, I actually do know a zookeeper. One oh. of my, one of my uh, okay. had a, a roommate was so. a zookeeper, and it's true. She, oh, yeah. um, she had, you know, like a bachelor's degree in like zookeeperology sciences or whatnot, uh, <laughs> and that got her the job at the, I think, at the Central Park Zoo. So, uh, so yes, like some zookeepers do. Sure, there are other jobs, you know, that uh, I'm sure, like you know, shoveling the the, the elephant poo doesn't require um, a high school a college degree yet. Um, so I'm sure those jobs are still out there. So again, without having seen the movie, we can't really, uh, you know, uh, comment specifically on the skills and qualifications of Kevin James' zookeeping experience. But uh, yeah, I would say that uh, zookeeping doesn't get the uh, the respect that it deserves. And Kevin James, well, uh, you have no excuses for yourself. <laughs> He's a funny guy. I mean, he's a little thick set, but that's not too bad. <laughs> he does silly things, but I know what you mean. I know he's like the pandering. He's like the Jeff Dunham without the puppets kind of situation where it's like mass audience. Oh, that's like, sad. Jeff Dunham without the puppets. It is sad. It is sad. I mean, yeah, I think that we need to, as a culture, acknowledge that there are many, many skills that require a great deal of training. I have a cousin who's a park ranger uh, and has all sorts of ridiculous skills like rescue, jumping out of helicopters. And like he actually took like bike chase training to like chase people out bicycles through crowded streets and things oh, like that wow. like there's also you have to keep getting one of the, the things about government jobs like this in particular is that because they're all based on seniority right because they're like there's a lot of sort of union culture um seniority is so important training is so important you have to keep getting certifications for different skills in order to keep yourself current and in competition for for promotions which are very competitive so like you know you need to be the best of the best of the best to get to like a spot at like yellowstone you know, national park. I, I had to check myself and make sure I didn't accidentally say Jellystone, because um, I was like, because that I live in a fictional place. Um, <laughs> but yeah, does anybody else have any other comments on that stuff? Because I have other questions. There are a couple more. A couple more questions. Uh, next question is from C Morgan Examiner, uh, which is, how do you feel about the modern adaptation of Charlie's Angels? Are you? Are there any shows of a similar stripe that you'd want remade? So, Steve Morgan Examiner also asked us a question about being great. So now he, he gives us, or she gives us, a real question, which is that um, I mean, we went through this whole thing already with Starsky and Hutch and all that other nonsense, and the A Team, like all these '70s shows and early '80s shows being remade. Are there any others that you guys are missing that you think need to get hit up? Uh, I've got a I've got a cartoon that I would like to see either remade as a live action or as just a, a more modern cartoon. Uh, have any of you guys ever seen Lupin the Third? Oh yeah, I know you love yeah. that. So Lupin, that. Lupin the Third is awesome. I mean, uh, I, I actually maybe I don't I don't even really want it remade. I just want them to like re-air the original episodes again. <laughs> you just uh, want to get like twenty minutes of airtime and be like, "This is awesome," and just like say it. And it's fantastic. You feel yeah. validated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to like have a button that I can hit in my living room, and I just take over the airwaves of like people of Earth. Check this out, and then it's just a couple of hours of Lupin the Third. And Lupin the Third is an anime, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's an anime really like no other, or at least like very few that made it um, across the across the pond, across the bigger pond, across the <laughs> lagoon. You can call across- it the Pacific Ocean if you want, but you don't uh, have- Yeah, no, it's actually sort of a court ruling that says I can't. Um, <laughs> the, the Ridge of Fire, it made it across the Ridge of Fire. Uh, no, it, it, so it's an, it's a, it's a it's Japanese cartoon from the sort of late seventies, early eighties about like a master thief and his gang of bizarre uh, movie trope sidekicks, uh, <laughs> uh, sort of constantly on the run from uh, a fumbling French Interpol agent and uh, the like incredible uh, and and sort of outlandish heists that they pull off. Um, mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, there's not a single giant robot in the like ten year run of the film. <laughs> it's, well, so, with the exception of that, it is awesome. 
Well, Lupin the Third was originally a manga, as many anime are, so I want to say that just so nobody will actually is less on that. And they did, as recently as February of 2010, come out with a new television special. The 20th special is Lupin the Third, The Last Job. But I feel like you really <laughs> would want a, a legit remake and not like a continued pumping that stuff out. I mean, we never yeah, see, yeah. see any of that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't want like the failed 1996 Doctor Who television movie. I want the 2005, you know, uh, Eccleston revamp of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Any other requests? I mean, I'd love to see Chips, but that's just it's ridiculous. But, um, I've got one. I've okay. got one that needs to come back. Hardcastle and McCormick. Okay, uh, refresh our memory. Was that an that anime or a manga? Well, that's kind of jelly, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I have some sliced turkey that says that. I'm obsessed I, with Hardcastle and McCormick. Oh my god! Okay, so Hardcastle <laughs> and McCormick was, was a an almost instantly forgettable Stephen J. Cannell uh, '80s action drama about a about this hardcore judge, Milton Hardcastle, who's got this file back at home of 200 criminals who got off on technicalities. And he has to charge this former race car driver who's become a car thief, uh, Mark McCormick. And he's like, hmm, this guy could be useful. So he says, like, all right, I won't send you to jail, but you've got to help me catch these criminals. And McCormick's like, okay, let me use my prototype uh, race car. As he <laughs> yes! To catch these criminals, and the various episodes are him going after people in, in the judge's file. And there is literally no reason that show can't be remade tomorrow. There's no, <laughs> there's no didn't they, didn't they, they, they just turned McCormick into a knife, right? And they made it uh, Dexter. Maybe one of the reasons why they'd have trouble is that Hardcastle uh, throughout the show appears to wear a Yankee hat, which is pretty controversial. I mean, like, you know, back in the day, maybe that was okay, but these days, I mean, <laughs> the Yankees are, are endangered species, right? Like, well, then, make him, then make him into a Cubs fan. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, Hardcastle hard McCormick fans would go up in arms if we changed the baseball team that he rooted for. <laughs> oh, no. McCormick looks a lot like he like painfully looks like David Hasselhoff. Like they picked a guy who looks like a broke David Hasselhoff. I'm looking at Google Images right now. Their car is awesome, by the way. It's one of those yes. like Hot Wheels kind of cars. It's the totally co- awesome. the Coyote X <laughs> prototype future car. Awesome, awesome. That's what? spectacular. <laughs> oh, actually, what? actually, you know, what? I I have another. Sorry, we. Should we stay on Hardcastle McCormick for long? No, 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 but I want, I want to throw, put mine in there. Uh, oh, yeah, you, yeah, sorry, sorry, Mark, go ahead. Uh, not really that this should be remade or rebooted or whatever, but it inevitably will, so you might as well prepare prepare yourself for it as MacGyver, right? I mean, MacGruber yeah. probably, like, set that back, uh, you know, at least a five, five years <laughs> by sort of souring the MacGyver-esque market or the market for mulleted men doing, uh, you know, uh, crafty things with... With objects, but um, what the interesting thing that they could do with this is we sort of you know play with this idea that uh, you know maybe he doesn't Google anything at all, right? He just like knows all this stuff, which nowadays we would just Google like you know how to uh, you know uh, if somebody has written on a dry erase board with uh, not a dry erase marker, right? We would have to Google that to figure that out. MacGyver just knows it because he's MacGyver and he you know has all these mm-hmm. creative uses for household objects, and he would just know it and be like a constant thing. Like he doesn't have a smartphone; he just has like a you know like a crappy little candy bar Nokia from back in the day. And everyone's like, "How do you do that, MacGyver? You didn't Google it at all?" It's just like I just know it. He whips his. Uh, he just like he does things that other people can do by using the internet, like just himself. Like, you bought movie tickets without going on the computer? Like, that's great. Yeah, I went to the movie theater. <laughs> so, you know what the weather like weather's like outside without looking at a computer screen? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I looked out the windows. Your windows? Your windows you- installed without a computer? How's that possible? How do you open a window? <laughs> oh man, that is a good question, and I think uh, it might be the question that we leave it on tonight. I believe. Although we did have one question from Erigion. I don't want to leave out Erigion. He's the last guy who asked the question, but I have no idea. Just says, any thoughts on the trippy FX show Wilfred? Anybody have a thought on Wilfred? No. Nope. I've never watched it. Nope. Okay. And any thoughts on the Weird Al Lady Gaga controversy? Any thoughts on that? That's well, the last question from the Baron last Malachi. Heard, so for those who aren't familiar with this, my understanding is that uh, La- uh, Lady Gaga, uh, Weird Al tried to get permission from Lady Gaga's camp to uh, make his music video perform this way, which is a parody of Born This Way, and it was initially refused, and then Weird Al complained about it on Twitter and caused an uproar, 
And that Twitter uproar basically caused Lady Gaga's camp to reverse their position. And Lady Gaga, sort of the damage control, said that um, I never heard about the request. Someone, some lower level person, whatever, like denied the request. And once I heard about it, I, I granted the request, which I think it's ambiguous to this point now. It's like whether Lady Gaga actually denied the request at first and then had to go back on it because yeah. of the Twitter outcry. Um, yeah, yeah. Or if there was actually just some sort of like foul up in communication in her camp. So, yeah. mystery unsolved. What, no one it? wants another Coolio on their hands. <laughs> I think we can end on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is the truth that brings us to our conclusion. <laughs> and if you don't want another Coolio on your hands and you feel like you need to do something about it, why not go to overthinking it? I'm not saying it's going to work, but it's a pretty good idea. That's right. www.overthinkingit.com. Uh, I know you can mail us at, email us at podcast.overthinkingit.com. Ask us questions. You can t- get us on Twitter. Talk to us on Twitter. Maybe it's the new Ustream chat. Get some uh, live feedback on this. On this, uh, I want to say a curse word, but I won't because I'm being nice. Uh, yeah, we want to hear from you. Talk to you. Listen to you. We're we're all stuck on this planet now, so we might as well get along. <laughs> and hopefully we'll all get together and see you next time at overthinking.com, the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve space, 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 Take my love, take my land. What? You know what needs to get what needs to get remade, and they need to keep the original theme song from it. Is what the greatest is the greatest American hero? <laughs> Do you guys like probably yeah, yeah. the greatest, uh, the the most action packed show ever to feature a curly haired man? I'm going to just throw that out there. Should we sing the song to finish the podcast? Uh, <laughs> Who could it be? It's just me.